The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the simplest, most powerful website creator that helps you make headlines with your own stunning online presence. Explore elegant templates, Getty image integration, and more at squarespace.com and use the code Guardian to get 10% off. Guardian Books Podcast with Richard Lee. Last month, Alan Rusbridger stepped down as editor-in-chief of The Guardian after 20 years. Looking back on his time at The Guardian, Rusbridger recalled the opening period of his editorship as the libel years, during which, he said, it felt as if The Guardian was never out of one court or another. As Thomas Grant's Life of the Eminent QC Jeremy Hutchinson is published, the Guardian's former editor crosses swords with one of the English criminal bar's greatest stars. In this week's podcast, they discuss Hutchinson's leading role in shaping Britain's cultural climate after the Second World War, pushing back the boundaries of taste in the case of Lady Chatterley's lover, and lining up alongside Christine Keeler against the establishment. But when Hutchinson came to talk in front of a Guardian Live audience, Rusbridger began by asking him what it's like to be in his hundredth year. Well, the wonderful thing about getting to a hundred is you suddenly become interesting for the, for, the, for the first time. That's the first point. The second point is you can say anything about anything and there's no one there to correct you. So those are two of the up points. There are a lot of down points. I tell yeah. And um, you really knew Virginia Woolf and Lytton Strachey in that generation? Well, there's a lot, a lot of talk about rarely knowing. So, uh, people forget that when The Wasteland was uh, published, I was seven years old. And uh, it wasn't until I, I got to my teens, really, that I appreciated these people. Um, I'm afraid, uh, as far as Bloomsbury is concerned, my sister and I used to mimic their voices, which were particularly funny, and uh, it was only later I realised what remarkable people they were, of course. Strachey had a very high-pitched voice. Uh, He had a very, yes, a very high, squeaky voice. But uh, the Bloomsbury's, when they spoke with this, yes, so interesting. (laughs) Extraordinary thing I saw today. So my sister and I used to have conversations with that sort of boy. <laughs> well, what I thought we'd do this evening, I, there are many interesting cases in this book. We're going to jump to 1963, and the most famous woman in Britain at the time, after the Queen, was Christine Keeler. <laughs> and one day, you're in your chambers, and... She walks in. What was your impression of the woman who walked into your room? Well, you see, the whole, uh, the whole Profumo scandal was enormously definitive of the age, really. And uh, Christine Keeler was a central figure in the whole business because of Jack Profumo having this affair with her. Uh, and. Uh, 
She was taken up by the press, of course, and was pictured as a wicked, terrible woman who ruined lives of the people she slept with, and that she was a sort of tart, and so on. And uh, the real truth of the matter was that Christy Kidder was a very pathetic figure. She had the most awful bringing up, was brought up in a, in a, a sort of dis, almost a disused garage and had a, a child aborted at the age of 16 and eventually came to London and got jobs in sleazy clubs and so on. And then was suddenly taken up by Ward, who was, as everybody now knows, was a, a, an extraordinary character. He was obviously fascinated by what was going on in the sex world, as it were. He was a voyeur rather than a performer. And uh, he met Christine in one of these sleazy clubs. And he had this house on Lord Astor's estate. And which he entertained these girls who, who, who he groomed, really. But um, you see, the, the, there was a swimming pool which belonged to Lord Astor, and he allowed his guests, Ward and his guests, to, to, to swim in the swimming pool. And uh, Ward was there with his house party, as it were, and then along came Lord Astor with his grandees, and Profumo was one of them. And Profumo fell for uh, Christine in the swimming pool and, of course, got her telephone number and, of course, rang her up and had this quite short, rather boring relationship, which was purely <laughs> sex with her. Uh, and uh, this Russian, of course, was also a friend of Ward's and also took up with her. And of course, once this got out, the press were onto it and made a sort of huge story about the Russian and the, and the Minister of War sharing a prostitute. And a lot of sort of pillow talk about him discussing abstruse subjects. Of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> and so on, with her passing them on to perform. It was all complete rubbish, of course. <laughs> Two or three years, she led this life with Ward, uh, being introduced to all these grand people. I don't think she really knew what was going on. She was absolutely moving from one person to another, totally unlike Mandy, who was her friend, who had a her head totally screwed on and knew exactly what was going on. And then she got this attraction for West Indians in London and got into the world of drug pushing and so on. It was obviously very attractive physically by black men. And as a result of all that, quite apart from the whole Profumo thing, she got into trouble with the that underworld of, of drug pushing and so on. And eventually there was a trial and, and she told a lot of untruths about this Baron Gordon, for whom she became very, very frightened. And um, she was charged with perjury and so I represented her. And it was the last act of the Profumo scandal. And she came into my chambers 
And of course, all my colleagues were looking through the keyholes of their doors, <laughs> seeing that she was an absolute dream of beauty. There's no question about it at all. And she came into my room and she sat down there and I talked to the solicitor and so on. And then I turned to her and asked her a question. And when she spoke, her voice was so hideous <laughs> and so awful. It was the voice of someone who was tired of life altogether and hard. And it, suddenly her whole attraction disappeared. And it made me realize how important people's voices are, something we don't notice really. And um, what, what was going on in Britain that summer? I mean, Bernard Levin wrote about it as a moment of collective insanity. I mean, the, the, people thought that the whole of the British political establishment was degenerate and that there were orgies all over the place. And, um, and it, it was a sort of very fevered atmosphere that was the background to these trials. Yes, you see, but the press built it up tremendously, as you can imagine. And then they got hold of Christine Keeler, of course, and uh, paid her large sums of money for interviews, which they wrote for her to sign. And she just signed them, and then was, got five grand for the article, of course. And they created all these stories. And she really wasn't understanding what was going on, I don't think. Was the pursuit of Stephen Ward corrupt? It was an appalling miscarriage of justice, and Geoffrey Robinson has written a brilliant book about it, and the behaviour of the establishment in that case. I mean, they were, they were determined to get Ward some way or the other, because they looked upon him as the central figure, and, uh, and uh, the Macmillan government was in real trouble and eventually fell, as you know, as a result of all this. And they were determined to get Ward. And um, as Geoffrey Robinson writes up in his book, I mean, the, the uh, Home Secretary had a meeting with the head of Scotland Yard, the head of MI5, and literally asking the intelligence and the police whether Ward in their view, it committed an offence on which they could get him. And uh, the MI5 man said, no, there's no evidence at all that anything has arisen on the security side. And the police officer said, well, there's very little, very, not really any evidence committed a criminal offence, but we might get him in relation to living on the moral, immoral earnings of these women that he put up and, and, and groomed. And they literally went out and simply pinned on him, interviewed hundreds of people, hundreds of his friends, and pinned on him evidence that Ward had in fact lived on their immoral earnings, which was completely untrue. And of course, these girls weren't prostitutes. They were good time girls. They chose the men that they wanted to sleep with. They weren't there ready to just pay so much an hour or whatever it was. 
And, uh, and that was a terrible miscarriage of justice. Was, was that a, common at the time that there were these, or was it, was it the exception? No, I think that was completely exception. And of course, Ward, at the last day of his trial, realized that the judge was going to sum up for a prosecution and quite coolly decided he was going to commit suicide because he couldn't face the whole thing of going to prison and being disgraced. And, and um, he did commit suicide mm -hmm. the night before he was due to go to court for the summing up. Did you see the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical? Yeah. What did you think of it? Careful. <laughs> I didn't think the music was all that wonderful, but, but, but it was too, it was too, it was too complicated. Too complicated. It was too, co I mean, mm. it was a brilliant effort, actually, mm. but, and it was It was wonderful that Lloyd Webber wanted to make a musical about such a serious matter. Mm. He brought in everything, but... I wondered how it could possibly turn into a musical. It was, it was too complicated, really. Mm. Let's skip back now to Lady Chatterley, 1960, uh, another case about morality. And this was Penguin Books being sued over Lawrence's novel. You had to prove either that the book wasn't obscene or that there was such literary merit in it that there was a public interest in, in it being published. Yeah. So this, this was really the seminal obscenity case, wasn't it? Well, it was the test case yeah. of the new legislation, which, yeah. which Roy Jenkins had got through the House of Commons. When you were, for the first time in the question of obscenity, given a defence, which with the onus was on you to prove, but you were given a defence that uh, the book, even if it was obscene, should be published for the public good on the fact that it had literary or scientific or whatever merits and for other reasons of, of uh, whatever it was. And, and the way that you set out to prove that was to call this array of distinguished witnesses, men such as E.M. Foster and... Richard Hoggart, yes. who came along and, and spoke about the book's literary merits. Well, the wonderful thing, Lady Chatterley, for a criminal barrister was that instead of defending some, I must say, alleged rapist or murderer or fraudsman, suddenly one was representing, although one was representing Penguin, one was rarely representing D.H. Lawrence. And the case was not a case of fact, it was a case of opinion. And uh, to sit in number one court at the Old Bailey and think of all the appalling people who'd sat in that dock, and, and the dock was empty because, of course, the company was being prosecuted, no individual. And, and I got there early and I, I just saw, sitting in the dock, D. H. Lawrence with his little beard and his bright eyes, sitting there where all these appalling people had sat, charged with these appalling criminal offences, 
And what was he charged with? The irony of it. He was charged with writing a book, the purpose of which was to make the sexual intercourse, save the sexual intercourse from the dirty-minded approach that it was now surrounded with and to rescue the four-letter words from their original, and put them back in their original meaning. And there he was, as it were, being tried in court number one at the Old Bailey. And the, the hero of the case, apart from yourself, was really Richard Hoggart, wasn't he? The, 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 yes. the, the literary critic, father of Simon Hoggart. And from the account in the book, it was the fact that he was himself working class uh, and distinguished scholar of Lawrence. And he explained Lawrence in a kind of way that was unchallengeable. He was the absolute ideal witness for those reasons and also being brought up in the Midlands and knew all about the area and the culture of that part of England. He was the absolutely ideal witness. And um, I think really the most enjoyable time in my professional life really was taking Hoggart through his evidence in that case. It was so enjoyable getting him to, I was determined that Lawrence's prose should be heard by the jury and that we should get away from this concentration on the sex because the description in the book are so beautifully written, some of them. So I read out particular passages in the book and there was absolute silence in court and uh, it was extraordinarily moving, really, to hear these beautiful passages read out in court number one. Then at the end of them, being able to say to Hoggart, what is your view about that? <laughs> and then he would give these wonderful answers. And of course, he was the ideal person. I mean, my policy in, in obscenity cases was always to face up to the, what's called the worst bits of the book not to hide them away and bring them out and read them so you, you, you could hear their context and so on. And uh, these passages about the reverence being shown for a man's testicles and uh, this wonderful passage about all this with Mervyn Griffiths-Jones for the prosecution, cross-examining Hoggart and say, what? <laughs> Reverence to a man's balls? <laughs> and, 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 and Hoggart saying, yes, indeed, reverence. A passage which illustrates that he's in the great tradition, the English tradition of Puritanism. And what? Puritanism? <laughs> Yes, indeed, indeed. And uh, to hear this again in the Old Bailey was absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I, I just want to hear from you, because I think you were looking at the jurors when Mervyn Griffiths-Jones, who was prosecuting, came out with perhaps the most famous line of the case when he said, would you even wish your wife or your servants to read this book? <laughs> And you... Well, that was a glorious moment because then 
one knew that the case was going to turn from obscenity into a case of them and us. Uh, and, of course, Gerald Gardner, who, you know, only came into the case at the last minute. And that was why I had a, such a lot... I had to have a lot to do in mm, mm. conducting it. Mm. Gerald Gardner gave a marvellous exhibition of advocacy. Couldn't have done it better. But he was the perfect person as against Melvin Griffith-Jones. I mean, Griffith-Jones was really a very nice man, but I mean, he, he was an old Etonian, a guards officer, a man of utter principle who couldn't believe that this book could be acquitted. It never entered his head that it was possible. And Joe Gardner representing the opposite side of the world couldn't have done it better. Mm. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace. When it's time to create a website for whatever's newsworthy in your life, whether that's a small business, online store, professional portfolio, or just a blog, go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. I mean, your career coincided with these huge social changes of the abolition of the death penalty the decriminalization of homosexuality, the huge changes over obscenity. Is Britain a kinder and gentler place today as a result of those changes that were often driven through the courts at the time that you were practicing? I think it's a much better place, really. People don't remember how constrained society was in those days, you know. There was a real them and us atmosphere. The Official Secrets Act was all right for us to know about these things, but not for you. And um, I had the luck to live in those 30 years, really, during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when this whole edifice, really, was gradually uh, demolished largely demolished of secrecy and um, censorship and held them and us and mm -hmm. deference and so on. Mm. And I think now we are a much freer, a much more open society than mm. we were then. Mm. But of course, if you've demolished something, you naturally open up other problems. Mm and tend, of course, to go too far very often. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about one final case, and your mention of the Official Secrets Act is the link there, and that this was a case much later, 1978, the so-called ABC trial, which was three defendants, Aubrey, Berry, and Campbell, and one of them was a retired Army signals expert, uh, and the other two were journalists on Time Out, and you defended Duncan Campbell, who was the one that the state were really out to get. The thrust of your defense was that this stuff wasn't secret. There was a ludicrous amount of secrecy around the operations of intelligence uh, at the time. Yes, Duncan Campbell, who was another of my clients, attended my book launch the other day, which was <laughs> very nice. He was a remarkable young man. And uh, he, he got a first at, uh, at Oxford, and uh, he turned into an expert on electronics and uh, 
from that into the whole surveillance world and made it his business to discover what was going on in this country. Of course, at that time, again, people will, don't remember, MI5, MI6 didn't exist. They were not mentioned in the press at all. And uh, as for GCHQ at Cheltenham, completely unknown. The fact that we had listening posts in Cyprus and in other parts of the world, completely unknown. Of course, the only people who really knew about it are the Russians. Of course, they knew about it, <laughs> naturally. But, but the, the British public knew nothing. And so he set, set about collecting information about the whole setup and where it was and what it was doing and burrowed away into documents and so on, amassed a whole mass, mass of information about the whole apparatus of our surveillance powers. Mm. And uh, he helped to write an article about this, which appeared in... Um, Time out. Mm. And of course, that caused an absolute rumpus in the security services. The, the claim was that it had done it exceptionally grave damage to the national interest. Yes. Did it? Well, it turned out, of course, that all the information that was disclosed was information which had been gathered from public sources. There was no suggestion, of course, that these three young men were working for the Russians or, or were traitors in any shape or form. But uh, all the paraphernalia of the trial with black morales and so on going on and, and uh, charges under Section 1 of the Official Secrets Act and the policemen with guns on the door and all that was all built up for their mm. trial at the Old Bailey. And when Mr. X and Colonel Y come into the witness box, you begin to question them. And the first question you say, do you work at so-and-so? My Lord, I'm not, I'm not allowed to answer that question. <laughs> Is this a picture of your... My Lord, I'm not allowed to answer that question. And then gradually, 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 one proved that all the information that's being collected was all have all been collected from documents and photographs mm. and so on which are and all that the people had done was to collect the information and then publicize it i asked you about edward snowden round the back and you said you didn't know a great deal about him and you didn't know what damage he'd caused but you broadly approved of getting more information about this area of life into the public domain. Yes, I think his disclosure about what's going on in the surveillance world was admirable to disclose that. What harm he'd done uh, to our intelligence, I don't know. But certainly the power now of the state and I'm not, I'm not at the moment going on how much they use it or not. The power of the state is now enormous that you can, in fact, survey 
any individual for 24 hours a day. And as people from Google and Facebook and so on are on the record for saying, privacy is over. There is no longer privacy. And when you think that there are people employed by the state who can get up and have a good breakfast, say goodbye to their family, go to a nice, comfortably central heated room, sit in front of a screen, and simply by manipulating the information on the screen can bump off someone in Pakistan or in the Middle East. And in doing so, of course, sometimes making a mistake and bumping off the wrong person. Or, of course, bumping off 15 other people at the same time, which is covered by the phrase collateral damage. Now, no one seems to mind this at all. And this is perfectly simple murder, what we call it in, in this country, against international law. And it is going on. And nobody seems to mind. But the, the, the public... The, 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 the power of the state now is enormous. And that's why in my... Uh, piece I've written in this book, I point out the appalling danger of making it impossible for ordinary people anymore to have the services of a good advocate. And, and let, let's, come to the, <coughs> let's come to that point because I'm just going to read a bit from your, your there's a postscript in this book which you've written and you talk about the abolition of the office of Lord Chancellor on a whim. Uh, the second greatest office of state was destroyed after 800 years. And then you write this. Of course, the presence of an unelected judge amid a group of democratically elected politicians was on the face of it an anachronism. But the modern acceptable replacement turns out to be but a puny shadow of the past. Enter Mr. Grayling. <laughs> Enter Mr. Grayling, whose job before entering Parliament is recorded as management consultant, <laughs> a transient workaday politician on his way up the political ladder, Minister of Justice with the title of Lord Chancellor, with no experience of the law, no knowledge of how the criminal process works, no understanding of the delicate checks and balances we have put in place over the last 50 years to bring justice to all people. In the excess of his management skills, he has deliberately destroyed the present system and in doing so, in all probability, the proper functioning of the criminal bar. So what, what do you really think about him? <laughs> no, uh, as I say in that book, I hope the book will entertain and amuse people because... It's so incredibly well-written by Tom Grant. He chose the cases, and it's his writing if the book is a success. It chose the cases which had relevance to what was going on in society. 
It's not a book about murders and rapes and frauds and such like, which of course is the, the basis of one's practice at the criminal bar. And that's why these cases have been chosen. But underneath it all, although there's a lot of fun in the book, I think, and a lot of quite interesting social things to be said about it, underneath it there is a serious, serious message. And that, and that is the message which you've read out there. Because um, it's not uh, uh, saying that uh, lawyers are, are wonderful people or lawyers are special people. The fact is, as everybody knows, that the law, in fact, supports the whole of society. You can't have a society without law. Uh, and it's the, the basis of society. And um, if you want to, if you're an autocrat, the first thing you do, as we see in all sorts of countries, is to make it impossible for the advocate, the, the lawyer, to operate. That's how you begin. And in no, no auto, autocratic country is there a free bar, as it were, or free legal system. Is your main worry about the access to justice now, because poor people now can't afford to represent themselves, to, to be represented? Is that your main worry? Yes, it's curious because both the Labour Prime Minister and now Tory Prime Minister, who in my view, are both people who, whose whole background is really presentation all the time. Blair just got rid of the office of Lord Chancellor on the back of an envelope because there was a dispute between the Lord Chancellor, Lord Irving, and his Home Secretary. And Irving was saying, you can't do that because it's not within the law, the rule of law. You mustn't do that to Blunkett, the Home Secretary. And Blair decided that Blunkett should do what he wanted to do and just simply not only got rid of the Lord Chancellor, but got rid of this interfering office called the Lord Chancellor. Well, now, as I say in the book, it's an anachronism to have a judge sitting along a lot of... Uh, democratically elected politicians, but it was, in our curious constitution, it was a, a central pillar of the constitution because there was the representative of the rule of law sitting in the center of power, saying to his colleagues, no, you can't do that. And watching throughout the government obeyed the rule of law. He was got rid of and then was created the Ministry of Justice. And the Minister of Justice has been given the name of Lord Chancellor. And as I say, it's a, a puny office. And the Lord Chancellor is allowed to be a non-lawyer which is completely ridiculous. He's the man whose daily touch with ministers of the Crown, telling them what the law is, 
telling them they, they can do this or they can do that. And uh, it seems to me the contempt of the politicians to, to allow the Lord Chancellor to be a layman, as I say, on his way up the ordinary political scale, knowing nothing about the law at all, is to me almost beyond belief. And that's the situation that we have today. And of course, Mr. Grayling has now slashed the ability to uh, allow legal aid. There are whole swathes of this country where you can't get legal aid. There are whole areas where you have to travel 20 or 30 miles to get to the source of legal aid, which people, of course, don't bother or can't afford to do. And uh, as a result, now, there are many, many, many people, or the kind of people that I've spent my life representing, who cannot be represented, and they are appearing in court defending themselves. I, I would like to end just by reading the, the, the last two paragraphs of um, the preface to this book by Thomas Grant, because I think it captures what we've heard tonight. It's, of course, Jeremy's voice, which was and remains his chief asset. Listening to him speak now, one can understand the mesmeric quality that he exercised in the courtroom. It's a voice which serves as a link to an earlier age and allows one to conjure up a speaking manner lyrical and intonated, but with the capacity for sustained intensity, which has been largely overtaken by the flatter tones of the 21st century. While he was outlived almost all his contemporaries, his friendships have constantly renewed themselves, and his social life is, in brackets, almost as active as it ever was. Perhaps the most important truth about the man that has emerged from my research is his capacity for friendship, his ability to inspire the affection and respect of others. His is truly an example of the life well lived. Jeremy Hutchinson, thank you for coming to Jeremy Hutchinson's Case History by Thomas Grant is published in the UK by John Murray. Thanks to Jeremy Hutchinson and Alan Rusbridger. For more literary discussion, join the debate on the Guardian Books website or follow us on SoundCloud or sign up on iTunes or install us on your smartphone. Just start up your favourite podcast app and search for Guardian Books Podcast. From me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Eva Krisiak, thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.